Welcome back to Mark's Madness, now part of Chunkaluta. I'm still singing by myself. Another episode without music. Sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, we once again are, are without Shugmani 2, but um, Shugmani 2 should be back next week, um, so they won't be away from us for too long. Uh, stuff just keeps coming up on the recording days. They're, they're good. Um, so... We are going to jump back into the Stuart Hall reading reader um, that Prez has created for us. Um, and in this reader, we're on page six. We're actually going to finish a paragraph, but finish a paragraph at a break where it's, I, I don't know, I just, I feel like the thought broke between the sentences. So it's, it's good. Um, but before we get into that, we tend to discuss current events and, it has been an unfortunately uh, deadly week. Um, obvious, you know, content warning here. Um, there, just in Texas specifically, have been two overtly um, racist, you know, attacks that have happened, right? Uh, one was a shooting, um, and the shooting was in, in a town called Allen, Texas. It was at like a strip mall. Uh, it was killed, what, like eight people? Yes. So it killed eight people. Six people died on the spot. Two died in the hospital. And then the shooter killed them, uh, killed himself. But the shooter was a former um, army, uh, I could say veteran for that. I, I don't know why that word suddenly escaped me, um, named Mauricio Garcia, who, while shooting... And we've talked about this before. A lot of these motivations are incredibly white supremacist, right? Um, it's not like there aren't any shootings caused by for other reasons. And there is one thing that ties um, in and pretty well is white supremacy itself. Even more the shootings than white supremacy, and that's explicit misogyny. Uh, but other than that, you know, since Columbine, shooters have been overt white supremacists for all these mass shootings that make the news. And yet we never really hear about that. And this shooter in particular was wearing a patch on his arm that said right wing death squad, which is a patch that is worn by neo-Nazis um, to signify that they expect themselves to go out and be brown shirts just, you know, from a vigilante position. Right. Um, just we we always run into this in this show because this. This is something that happens pretty constantly in the United States. And as it scales up, it gets to be more complex with the primary contradiction here. Okay. And the primary contradiction we get is, you know, criminalization or removal of guns will not come down on the white supremacists, is not disarming cops, and, and is just going to be another excuse for cops to shoot uh, black people and kill and arrest black people and indigenous people. But also cops do that anyway. It would just happen more <laughs> if guns were criminalized. And then guns would be out there doing these mass shootings anyway because the main cause is the white supremacy and also the immense amount of weapons manufacturers in the country that comes from that. That is what's unique about the United States. The explicit white supremacy just deeply ingrained into everything about this country, its culture, its history, and the fact that all of the big weapons manufacturers are here 
And specifically, you know, it's one thing to have like Boeing, who's a big, you know, aviation weapons manufacturer, right? And that's horrible that they're here. But that's not the company like selling bullets to, you know, the military and then turning around and selling guns all over the United States, like say Winchester, right? Um, but all of those, you know, gun manufacturers specifically and weapons manufacturers, the huge centers are here in the United States. And as a consequence, there are going to be guns everywhere. And then, of course, because of that, they have a major lobbying arm, the NRA, which exists far more than for the supposed gun owners' rights, is explicitly a right-wing dog whistle and long has been. And the Republican Party has really worn on their sleeves, literally on lapel pins, that this is their right-wing dog whistle. Their, you know, I get to kill people with my gun, ha, 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 thing. And the legality allows that to proliferate, right? It allows people to get guns more easily. And of course, people with more money are going to get more guns. So as long as it's legalized, which is one of the ways that white supremacy works um, to get these guns out there, it's one of the ways that the, the gun lobby works, it's it's going to be worse and it gets worse every day but also if it's made illegal it's not going to crack down on the people that are the problem the overwhelming misogynistic and white supremacist you know people causing these attacks it's going to crack down on criminalized people lgbt people black and lgbt plus people uh, black people indigenous people immigrants things like that right and when we say immigrants immigrants from the global south not from europe <laughs> Um, and so, you know, we have a complex issue where we are against criminalization. We are abolitionists. So, you know, gun control, quote unquote, it, that doesn't mean anything if cops aren't disarmed too, but also so long as this gun culture exists and it's not the gun culture gets to be a buzzword. It's not just culture. As long as the gun manufacturers here, as long as the guns are sold everywhere, you know, it's, it's not untrue that there's no reason for people to own an AR-15. It's not untrue that those shouldn't be legal. It's that, them being illegal also wouldn't actually attack the problem. And it would be used to pop up, prop up the white supremacy. That is the problem. Um, and so every day, you know, this kind of contradiction comes more to a head. And in the process, people are dying. Uh, white supremacy is genocidal. You know, not only are we barreling towards human extinction through climate change, not only are we looking at genocidal wars abroad, not only looking at a thousand plus people killed by cops. And, and I say a thousand, a thousand is the like 900 something every year is a self-admitted shootings. There's also people killed in prisons. There's also people killed with cars by cops. There could be other killings that aren't self-admitted in this data that, that uh, is researched. So, you know, more than a thousand people killed every year by cops. That, that is genocidal, but then it also unleashes this vigilante random death culture that we exist in where anywhere every day you know it, it this is a war zone people are like look i don't want things to be like a war zone i don't want things to be like a war zone well first off most war zones in the world are the united states and other imperial powers that it works with and other you know puppet forces that it props up across the global south killing people randomly kind of like these shootings and of course that comes back home to roost so now back home is a war zone and of course the people that are attacked and killed and, you know, raped and, and all those things in a war zone are the people who are the most oppressed. And those are things that happen constantly in a war zone. And, 
your life could be taken any time when you're just trying to live your life. Um, people talk about like banality of evil, which is such a stupid buzzword that that dismisses people's participation in Nazi Germany. But what it tries to get at was that people living their everyday lives are fully aware they're in a terrible society, and yet. You know, they're still trying, like, they're not waking up panicking, like, oh, the Nazis are here, I have to hide under the floor, or something like that. You know, they're like, I gotta go to work, I gotta go to the store, I gotta, you know. You're living these everyday lives in this hell world, and that's, that's you know, the way war zones can be, and that's what this country has become. Um, because of guns. And more importantly, guns are just the tool, just like books can be a tool, and I would not be okay with, you know, Mein Kampf being printed for every fucking buddy. But also, you know, the, there's a reason we're, we're very worried about the Republican book bans of, you know, books about racial contradictions in the United States, books about um, accurate histories, you know, things like that, right? We remember the book burnings. Uh, Nazi Germany started with exactly what the book bans are, are hunting for now by Republicans' attacks on LGBTQ plus people. Um but guns are just a tool of white supremacy. And the white supremacy is the problem. And it is, it has grown into such a violent state that it's almost incoherent. Um, it's just totally random that you could wake up with it. And again, an exemplification of it just being a tool in the same state, in the same week, uh, very obviously a white supremacist attack. There's supposedly no motive, whatever. This was, uh, and you were saying, Prez, this was the only immigrant center and homeless shelter open overnight in Brownsville, Texas. Um, yep. Eight people were killed because a driver of a car like flew through a red light to run people over at the bus stop in front of this shelter and killed eight Venezuelan people. Um in Brownsville, Texas. So yeah, that was a direct attack on immigrants. And this is, this is what you get when you fear monger about immigrants, when you fear monger about great replacement. And these are decades long projects by the right wing, which is not exclusive to Republicans, but is shown in its barest form uh, with the narratives that Republicans push. But this is, this is what the United States is. If even if we just look historically, all the things that re the right wing is trying to do, granted, it's not the same as, say, the 19th. There's no, as we've been seeing, there's no such thing as a repeat, exact repeat of history. Yes, but exactly. Like, We're talking about the Grand G. Yeah. They're, they're trying to go back to when we were doing like, open bold-faced genocide and and like the, the mm -hmm. major labor laws that we all uphold fdr for doing specifically exempted like industries that predominantly hired mexican uh, immigrant labor and i think fdr even banned mexican immigration for a time mm -hmm. um, so you know History doesn't repeat itself, but it, it likes to mirror the whole first is tragedy, then is farce thing, except this time it turns into whole wholesale fascism. Yeah. Um, I mean, people put this a lot of ways. There's several expressions. The one, you know, Marxists tend to use is, is first as, as tragedy, then as farce, although, you know, the farce, of course, can be pretty darn tragic. Some other people say, like, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes and stuff like that. But it, do it doesn't come exactly the same. 
but that past history will like there is some group of people that will attempt to redo it and if we don't learn our lessons it's not that it will just coincidentally happen from the same causes it will very explicitly and intentionally happen by people who are interested in it who looked at that history and want that again and that's exactly what reaction lives on that's what reaction feeds on and that's what reactionaries do and anytime you hearken back to founding fathers or the constitution or this great country or whatever you know that's what you're looking to and when you push like a linear description of history not only does it ignore that entire important cycle of time um, that happens where history repeats in a different form uh, more appropriate for the time but you know you're also giving a narrative to to fight back upon right to you give you're giving soil for the the right wing to to grow stuff on it's like we've moved past you oh we we have to have it back we have to fight for it or or whatever and so you know and of course the quote unquote left wing in the United States the, the liberals out there who aren't actually left wing don't really do anything to combat this and that's where you also see you know first as tragedy then as as farce you see the repeats of of thing you know people are like well you know trump isn't being appointed chancellor so that's not repeating hitler well no but the liberals are rolling over and handing it to them to avoid socialism like liberals rolling over to hand things to fascists to avoid socialism is a cycle that repeats constantly and it's always deadly and it's always you know a great bit um, even if it's mostly you know reaction mostly the fascist fault it's always a great bit the liberals fault and the victims are always you know the socialists and of course more importantly the groups heavily populated with socialists, disproportionately populated with socialists because of this fact, um, that are most effective, you know, the the oppressed um, peoples, the colonized peoples, LGBTQ2 plus people, women, you know, and of course, you know, people that, that sit across multitudes of different categories in there, but anyone that, that is on the oppressed side of a power structure is who that comes down on those are the real victims not the liberals and then the liberals get to stand up and pretend they speak for everyone or you know they they go with like some well-intentioned thing like ban guns but then you go okay well here's the problem but we can fix that you know disarm cops too and then that's too much and then we're stuck in this fucking cycle and then it's easy to point at like you know greg abbott who's pardoning right before right before this car attack that that killed eight in front of the immigration center, Gregor Abbott openly pardoned someone who ran over protesters very intentionally, right? It's easy to point at that and blame that, and we shouldn't ignore that. We shouldn't not put the most onus on that. We should not center that, right? But you can't ignore the rest. You know, that, that stuff matters, right? That's like, it's like we would obviously, if someone was denying anti-semitism in the holocaust there'd be a big red flag and that shouldn't that shouldn't be okay but if someone was either ignoring the deep history of anti-semitism in europe or the other victims of the holocaust instead of just centering anti-semitism in the holocaust you'd be like hold on (laughs) you know and we should be doing the same fucking thing here right like if you're if you're you should be centering these republicans you'd be centering greg but you're only attacking republicans and making it a partisan thing that's someone trying not to really resolve the issue and just feel or look like the good guy. Um, 
but but most important here, of course, is is the victims, and we are under attack. And we've been saying this for a while. We've been saying this is, you know, the trans issues spike up. We we need to defend ourselves. This this isn't going to go away, and the power structures are made for this outcome. So of course they're not going to protect us against that. We have to oppose those power structures. We have to tear them down. And more importantly, we have to have something to put up in their place. Because the fascists are happy to tear them down and just leave this vigilanteism. And we can't have that either. Um, Prez, did you have any other current events? If Or were you ready to move into the, the reading? I don't have anything. Uh, okay. Everything is just so depressing. I think we it's can it's very depressing. We, we didn't even get into... We didn't even get into on Fox News. Oh my God! Um, on on Fox News, there was a former cop because, of course, oh it, um, no, no, yeah, it was a former cop. The former cop on Fox News named Alex Coker, and this is not Alex Coker who was part of the Iraq weapons inspection. It's just some some TV host, former cop. Um, let's see, do 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 do. He was quoting Mattis, which uh, obviously you know you got the issues there. Right. He was quoting Mattis and he was saying, be polite and professional, but plan to kill on everyone you meet. Not only does that tell you, again, across across the 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 two party spectrum, Democrat and Republican in the United States, the whole attitude of the military and why we have to oppose it and cops and why we have to oppose cops, it really lays it bare. But also, you know, they're talking about that just among citizens. This is what right wing white supremacist white nationalism demands and it's all the things we're doing to other countries circling back home and we should have a problem with it just being in other countries and all these years of not now it's circling back and we can't we can't just let that happen we have to stop it on both fronts so um but yeah it's very very depressing it's probably we should probably get another reading because <laughs> I, I don't know if we can do much else except talk in very depressing circles at this point. Um, so in the reading, like I was saying, we're, we're starting on the top of page six of this section of Stuart Hall. Uh, and it goes, he is one of the first original Marxist theorists of the historical conditions which have come to dominate the second half of the 20th century. Talking about Gramsci, of course. Uh, Nevertheless, in relation specifically to racism, his original contribution cannot simply be transferred wholesale from the existing context of his work. Gramsci did not write about race, ethnicity, or racism in their contemporary meanings or manifestations, nor did he analyze in depth the colonial experience or imperialism, out of which so many of the characteristic racist experiences and relationships in the modern world have developed and that is important of course racism derives directly from colonialism which is why we have to be decolonial marxists why we have to support land back um his principal preoccupation was with his native italy and behind that the problems of socialist construction in western and eastern europe the failure of revolutions to occur in the developed capitalist societies of the west the threat posed by the rise of fascism in the interwar period, and the role of the party in construction of hegemony. 
Superficially, all this might suggest that Gramsci belongs to that distinguished company of so-called Western Marxists, whom Perry Anderson identified, who, because of their preoccupations with more advanced societies, have little relevance to say to the problems which have arisen largely in the non-European world or in relations of uneven development between imperial nations of the capitalist center and the englobalized, colonized societies of the periphery. Just really uh, quick. Oh, yeah. Perry Anderson is known Good, that's as what like I was gonna... one, of the, one of the people who made Gramsci known in the West. Gotcha. Um, he's known as like one of the eminent Gramsci scholars. Um, but I, I think just as we can see in this last paragraph, mm-hmm. we're going to see Stuart Hall like show that he's secretly one of the best because he's directly applying the theory and all of its convoluted convolutedness to something. Okay. Okay. Um, so is this, is this like a, a, a Marx on Ricardo thing where they're like, you know, he's a little bit off, but I'm going to use what he got right and then pl- and then blast what he got wrong. Or is this? Oh no, be- he's just blasting what he got wrong. He's just just blast. Well, actually, that's a little more Ricardo. And so it's going to be like Ricardo back in Capital. It's going to be fun. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> to read Gramsci in this way would, in my opinion, be to commit the error of literalism. Though with qualifications, that is how Anderson reads him. Actually, though Gramsci does not write about racism and does not specifically address those problems, his concepts may still be useful to us in our attempt to think through the adequacy of existing theory paradigms in these areas. Further, his own personal experience and formation, as well as his intellectual preoccupations, were not in fact quite so far removed from those questions as a first glance would superficially suggest. Gramsci was born in Sardinia in 1891. Sardinia stood in a colonial relationship to the Italian mainland. His first contact with radical and socialist ideas was in the context of the growth of Sardinian nationalism, brutally repressed by troops from mainland Italy. Though after his movement to Turin and his deep involvement with the Turin working class movement, he abandoned his early nationalism. He never lost the concern imparted to him in his early years with peasant problems and the complex dialectic of class and regional factors. And then there's a note that for this and later, see Noel Smith and Hoare's excellent introduction to the prison notebooks. I don't know if we're going to be touching that because after this, we're going to Gramsci, right? I don't remember exactly which prison notebooks (laughs) uh, book. Because uh, all of, all of the translations, even if it was like reprinted mm-hmm. in the 2000s, they were like originally done in the 70s and 80s. So I don't. Oh, uh, okay. Don't remember, so we might be we might be diving into that specifically. Yeah, and, and horror horror is also known as one of the main translators of Gramsci. So he has like six different selected works of Gramsci. But gotcha. um, should we explain very briefly the that quote unquote colonial relationship to Italy? Sure. Sure. Um, Yeah, no, that's good. That's the kind of context we need. So generally speaking, and we're going to end up reading this, this is his essay called The Southern Question, which he actually couldn't completely finish. He was in the middle of writing it when he got arrested. Um, Conveniently timed. Yeah. There's essentially the north and the south of Italy. The islands of Sicily and Sardinia are part of the south even though Sardinia is geographically like further up north. Gotcha. The northern part of Italy 
was historically the industrial center, even going back into the middle feudal ages. Those were the places where you first start getting, uh, you know, the emergence of capitalism. There's the whole debate between whether or not Venice or the Netherlands started capitalism. But regardless, the north of Italy was where we get all of the like feudal semi-bourgeoisie making these small factories. And then when he was in Turin, that was the center of fiat and the center of Italian industry. The south, even until after World War II, probably even today a little bit, um, was almost entirely feudal and peasantry um, and incredibly poor. The reason why he says that Sardinia is in relation to the rest of Italy as a quote-unquote colony, Mm -hmm. uh, we'll get into detail in the southern question, but just generally speaking, it's because um, Italy was united by force And generally speaking, you essentially had two or three different nations existing at the same time that were then forcibly unified. Um, The unification came through military, less so than, say, the the landowning classes working with the bourgeoisie to form a nation state. It was the South would actually put up a very strong resistance against uh, the creation of, of what we see as modern Italy. Um, and then, of course, you know, all the peasants were used as surplus labor and all of that kind of stuff. And that there, there's actually kind of a funny um, geographic thing here, too, because you have Sardinia is just south of Corsica, right? And we're talking about Sardinia being colonized by Italy and France has had a habit of, of colonize and split and colonize and split and colonize and split. And Corsica's right there, and that's kind of the French one. So I wonder how that ties into kind of that French pattern that they used all over Africa. Haiti's an example. They, they like colonize and take, take their chunk. Well, I forget the exact year, but I'm pretty sure that France actually got Corsica from, you know, quote-unquote Italy. Oh, okay. <laughs> I did not know that particular I, history. I think it was... In the French Revolution, um, but I know it was like trading back and forth between the French Empire and like the Piedmont Kingdom and and all of that. Gotcha. Um, Weirdly enough, even though there's a colonial relationship there, the unifying like monarchical family of Italy that Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, you know, Garibaldi and everyone went behind and then used to... Uh, Unify was actually the the kingdom of Sardinia actually ended up taking over (laughs) uh, Italy. It's very weird. Um, But, you know, the king. So when we have kingdoms in Italy, if -hmm. they're from the islands, they're like, we even have it like the kingdom of two Sicilies. So you have Sicily and then you have part of the mainland in the main kingdom. That was the same thing with Sardinia. It wasn't gotcha. just Sardinia. Gotcha. Okay. And when we're talking about southern Italy, that's like everything um, south of Naples or everything south of Rome? or Generally, it's like, so Rome and Naples are actually really close, but generally mm-hmm. it's like Rome or Naples and then south of that. South of that. Gotcha. If you go from Rome and you go to Naples, it's, it's even today, it's like a very stark contrast um, in terms of development. 
and it's only like an hour long train ride. Cool. Cool. See, this is, this is the context we need that I don't, I don't have, I don't know Italy up and down. And I try to add context, these books So really glad that we we've got you on here, not just making the readers, but giving us this stuff. Um, back to the book or back. Yeah. Back to the reading. Gramsci is Gramsci was acutely aware of the great line of division which separated the industrializing and modernizing north of Italy from the peasant, underdeveloped, and dependent south. He contributed extensively to the debate on what became known as the Southern Question. At the time of his arrival in Turin in 1911, Gramsci almost certainly described to, to what was known as a Southernist position. He retained an interest throughout his life in those relations of dependency and unevenness which linked north and south. In the complex relations between city and countryside, peasantry and proletariat, clientism and modernism, feudalized and industrial social structures. He was thoroughly aware of the degree to which the lines of separation dictated by class relationships were compounded by the cross-cutting relations of regional, cultural, and national difference, also by differences in the tempo of regional or national historical development. When in 1923, Gramsci, one of the founders of the Italian Communist Party, proposed UNITA as the title of the party's official newspaper, he gave his reason. Because we must give special importance to the Southern question. In the years before and after the First World War, he immersed himself in every aspect of the political life in the Turin working class. This experience gave him an intimate inside knowledge of one of the most advanced strata of the industrial factory proletarian class of Europe. He had an active and sustained career in relation to this advanced sector of the modern working class. First as a political journalist on the staff of the Socialist Party Weekly, Il Grido del Popolo. Did I say that even remotely correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then during the wave of unrest in Turin, the so-called Red Years, the factory occupations and councils of labor, and finally during his editorship of the journal Ordine Nuovo, up to the founding of the Italian Communist Party. Ordine Nuovo is New Order. Ah, okay. Um, Nevertheless, he continued to reflect throughout on the strategies and forms of political action and organization which can unite concretely different kinds of struggle. He was preoccupied with the question of what basis could be found in the complex alliances and of relationships between the different social strata for the foundation of a specifically modern Italian state. The preoccupation with the question of the regional specificity of social alliances, of social foundations of the state, also directly links Gramsci's work with what we might think of today as north-south as well as east-west questions. Um, so we've been talking about things are not one-to-one, and you can't just like cut something up and transplant it somewhere else. But there's a lot of commonalities and things we can glean. And it was interesting in that last paragraph because there's things like, um, you know, like naming the paper Unite and talking about Unite is because the Southern question is important, right? And we've talked about this so many times with because the, you know, Potsies and, and LaRoucheites will do their shit. Um, and I can't ever think of the word people that whittle things down to just class and try to ignore race and, and, misogyny i forget class essentialist is that it economist economist yeah 
that one we're going for, but that works just fine. So that, we'll go with that. Um, well, but Gramsci, uh, Gramsci calls that exact thing economism. Oh, okay. So. Well, there we go. Okay. <laughs> well, then that's where we should use while we're reading Gramsci. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> good stuff. Uh, but you know, the the implied thing in there is we should be seeking unity, right? But it's what you mean when you seek unity. And Gramsci was seeking unity. He was seeking it correctly. It was like unity means that the unique issues to the more deeply oppressed classes are important for everyone. And when you need to re- unite around those issues, even if they don't affect us because we're all in one big struggle, right? That's what's implied from that, that, that reasoning. And that's something we see now, you know, like, oh, we need to unite as a working class. Well, that means like the unique issues, like, you know, uh, issues for LGBTQ2 plus people, uh, you know, issues for colonized people, right? Especially like indigenous and, and black people, um, you know, issues for people of the global south that the imperialism goes and, and affects, um, you know, any anything like that. issues, you know, for, for people who are homeless, right? We need to unite around those, but that unity is not ignoring those issues. The unity is to focus on those issues, because this is all one big struggle, and those are important components of that struggle. And so that might be a good example of something we've been going on with the whole time of, you know, you can't cookie cutter, like, grab this thing here and move it over there, right? Like, I'm sure someone that was trying to do that could sit there and read this and go, oh, the the North was industrialized, and the, the South was, was, you know, more agrarian. This is just like the Civil War. And it's like, no, that's not, no, 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 no. But you can see like the the fact that unity is built on focusing on the issues that affect the most deeply oppressed parts that cause the most harm in the group, even if that's not part of the group that you're part of. That we can glean from this. That's a good example of something we can pull and use. At least that's the way I'm reading it. I, I don't know. We brought you on to, to, to be the Gramsci expert, so I'm I'm... Saying that to the listeners, not 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 telling <laughs> so, you how to read Gramsci Press. I so always feel like I, I always feel like I need that. Say that when I do. Um, the first thing is that you know a lot of what he writes about that we then have to adapt that we're seeing Stuart Hall adapt mm-hmm. is he's writing his own take on you know the quote unquote national question that <laughs> Lenin and Stalin uh, wrote about. There's a really good. Uh, hold on. Let me find a thing. Question. Kurdistan. Um, there's, there's a, uh, oh God. Kurdistan. Foreign. Which. While while you're looking at that, I'll just comment. Like the national question is of course something that we, it was known to be. Oh, you got it. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) So, and then there's, you know, if you're interested in, in like, you know, not, you know, let's just say European analyses of the national question. There's, there's Ibrahim Kaipakaya. Kaipakaya. Um, it's Turkish. I, I can't really okay. pronounce Turkish very well. He wrote on the national question specifically about Kurdistan, um, which is a really good read. Uh, but that adaptation of the national question is similar to Gramsci in that they both write that, you know, Lenin talks about how 
we should have a united socialist soviet republic that mm -hmm. is full of nations in both of these cases you know gramsci implies this he doesn't have enough time to flesh it out but in you know ibrahim's writing and and what's implied with gramsci is that um sometimes you don't have the ability to have a totally united um you know federalist state because there's not proper organization so the thing that gramsci talks about is you know we have to have unity but when we start reading his stuff he goes into like over and over again the cultural ideological differences between the north and the south that get in the way of it and to actually have a unified communist italy um, you need to both combat the feudal ideas that are in the south but also the northern petty bourgeois ideas and until you reconcile both of them you're not going to have a united nation or united nations within federalism uh, no that so it's kind of funny because i just ripped on like just transplanting you know the, the italian struggle to the civil war but we do have a reunifying uh aspect where you're pushing for reunification over uh getting things right can cause harm now a little different again because it was a whole different issue centered around at a whole different period of time and the push for unification was because the people in a bourgeois state that was interested in keeping up the white supremacist settler colony and even expanding it west and, and genociding indigenous people more. Um, of course, you know, we're more interested in reunification than getting it right. Um, hold on one second. But, but also, like, Reconstruction basically failed because there was hyper-focus on reunification. And if you put the reunification ahead of getting things right, they will always fail. Do you want me to take over, Dave? Yes. Okay. Um, Dave had something, so I'm going to take over, but just really quick. Um, in, in this reading, we can't really do the quotes very, like the air quotes very well. I do it, but it, it's a little wonky. But Stuart Hall here mentions, he, he puts the North and the South in quotations. He also puts the West and the East in quotations. Um, he actually has an entire paper, which we're not reading here. Um, it's called The West and the Rest, and then also a related one called The Whites of Their Eyes. They actually are both there to kind of provide a material analysis for where Edward Said fails. And Edward Said fails in Orientalism, as important as it is, it it's, does not provide a, a material analysis of history of the ideology behind colonialism. So those two I would recommend checking out um, if you're interested in that. And let's go back to the reading. I'm going to backtrack a little bit because we spent such a long time diverting. Um, at the time of his arrival in Turin in 1911, Gramsci almost certainly subscribed to what was known as this quote-unquote southernist position. He retained an interest throughout his life in those relations of dependency and unevenness 
which linked north, quote unquote north and quote unquote south. And here you can even think about Trotsky's idea of uneven development, um, which linked north and south. And the complex relations between city and countryside, peasantry and proletariat, clientism and modernism, feudalized and industrial social structures. He was thoroughly aware of the degree to which the lines of separation dictated by class relationships were compounded by the cross-cutting relations of regional, cultural, and national difference. Also, by differences in the tempos of regional or national historical development. When in 1923, Gramsci, one of the founders of the Italian Communist Party, proposed UNITA as the title of the party's official newspaper, he gave us his reason, quote, because we must give special importance to the Southern question, unquote. In the years before and after the First World War, he immersed himself in every aspect of the political life of the Torian working class. This experience gave him an intimate inside knowledge of one of the most advanced strata of the industrial factory proletarian class in Europe. He had an active and sustained career in relation to this advanced sector of the modern working class. First, as a political journalist on the staff of, this, on the, staff of the Socialist Party Weekly, Lugrido de Popolo, then during the wave of unrest in Turin, the so-called Red Years, the Red Years, uh, we don't really have time here, but the Red Years were open street fights between Mussolini's brown shirts and, and uh, Union, Union communists. The factory occupations and councils of labor, and finally during his editorship of the journal Ordina, Ordina Nuovo, up to the founding of the Italian Communist Party. The CPI split from the, the Socialist Party of Italy. Nevertheless, he continued to reflect throughout on the strategies and forms of political action and organization which could unite concretely different kinds of struggle. He was preoccupied with the question of what basis could be found in the complex alliances of and relations between the different social strata for the foundation of a specifically modern Italian state. The preoccupation with this question of regional specificity, social alliances, and the social foundations of the state also directly links Gramsci's work with what we might think of today as quote-unquote north-south, as well as quote-unquote east-west east-west questions. The early 1920s were taken up for Gramsci with the difficult problems of trying to conceptualize new forms of political quote-unquote party and with the question of distinguishing a path between development specific to Italian national conditions in opposition to the hegemonizing thrust, hegemonizing thrust of the Soviet-based common term. All this led ultimately to the major contribution which the Italian Communist Party has made to the theorization of the conditions of quote unquote national specificity in relation to the very different concrete historical developments of the different societies East and West. In the, in the later 1920s, however, Gramsci's preoccupations largely framed, were largely framed by the context of the growing threat of fascism up to his arrest and internment by Mussolini's forces in 1929. Gramsci's uh, writings on fascism are actually very interesting. We're going to get into them. 
Um, we can see him write about, you know, kind of taking the common turns line about fascism of this is, you know, capitalism in decay or whatever you want to call it. And then him going, okay, what the fuck happened? Why did we lose? And then going, this isn't capitalism in decay. This is capitalism. This is a step in capitalism. Um, he, of course, died before he could flesh that out. Palancis does a really good job of fleshing that out. Um, I think it's actually one of the best analyses of fascism ever. Um, and it's a very good, it, I, I think it's a natural application of Gramsci's idea of fascism. Um, yeah, I think that's, because that's something that, that we've seen before, you know, like fascism, if it's capitalism decay, it, it, it you know, been rearing back for a hundred years. <laughs> You know, um, it's it's almost more of a, a and and I would I would you know appeal to Palancis and and we should probably check that out first. But just from from observation and other works reading, it's it's more of a, a capitalism in crisis, right? It's a violent buttoning down um, to push fascist, capitalism into its new into a new phase, and you know that like we've seen that with austerity and credit and and things like that. So it, it can come about and. and different forms that aren't just brown shirts. Yeah. Palancis goes into the whole class alliances that make fascism, but we can, yeah. we can do that when you guys do a, fa a Palancis. Uh, okay. Series. Um, okay. Okay. So to return, so though Gramsci did not write directly about the problems of racism, the preoccupying themes of his work provide deeper intellectual and theoretical lines of connection to many more of these contemporary issues than a quick glance at his writings would suggest. End of part one. <laughs> End of part one. We are, we're 45 minutes in, which is the shorter side of an episode, and I hate to cut it off at like two and a half pages, but this is Mark's Madness. We sometimes read two pages, and I think that's a good stopping point if we just ended part one. I don't yeah, think we're we going to get good another one in five minutes. Theoretical so. discussion. So Yes. Yeah. That's worthwhile. Yeah, it's always worthwhile. It's a whole, that's something you really want to get into when you do these readings. So um, so this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Uh, there's a number of ways you can get a hold of us or uh, through Chunkaluta. Uh, you've got Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com or at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Uh, Chunkaluta1973 at gmail.com or at Chunkaluta on Twitter. Uh, both have respective discords. The Chunkaluta one you have to be invited into. So the Mark's Madness one is, is much larger. Um, and obviously you can DM us on Twitter or, uh, talk in the discord, uh, about getting into the chunk of one, but I believe that's paid through Patreon. Um, and there is, you know, uh, chunk of Patreon. I know also, uh, Shigmani 2, I don't know if it's the same Patreon or different one. I know Shigmani 2 definitely has one called, uh, Zakato Tin Can. It's supposed to be Zakato's Tin Can, but I'm pretty sure there's no S for sure. It's Zakato Tin Can. Um, on Patreon. Um, Shigmani 2 is always doing different fundraising efforts. I know um, right now, by the time you hear this, it'd be, you know, the, the quilt sale being pushed for would be long gone, but, um, you know, they, they do personal things to help, you know, relatives, um, but also do, you know, projects such as winter drives and, and things like that. So you can always donate to, to that stuff. Um, by you know subscribing to, to Chunkaluta's Patreon or going directly to uh, Shingmani 2's um, Cash App, which has been 
Cash App or uh, I think the other one is I don't remember what other ones Shikmani Two uses, which which has been named in other episodes and will be brought back up next You're episode by Shikmani themselves. Two comes back on for yeah. messing up all the names. Yeah, I should probably undo a lot of that, so we'll cut that. But anyway, um, Shikmani Two is always doing uh, different fundraisers, and there'll be more information on that when they come back next episode. Um, in the meantime, is there, um, anywhere you want to tell people to get a hold of you, Prez? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Marcy Marks <laughs> too. And, okay. uh, then there's the minion We're we're starting our fascism series. Um, so, you know, we, we take a while with editing, but we have some episodes, um, that will be coming out. So if you're interested in that whole theoretical debate, um, we recreate the whole debate about fascism being capitalism and decay <laughs> because there's no such thing as originality. Um, <laughs> so keep an eye out for that at the Minion Minion Pod on Twitter. And uh, yeah, that's that's all I got going on. I don't spend my life uh, doing good works like Shabonitu does. <laughs> Um, and then, as always, speaking of good works, uh, something we've always, uh, from the Mark's Madness side of this, wanted to do since the beginning. Uh, Nathan had come up to me and was like, hey, you know, you want to read Capital? You want to read things in a group? Um, and I was like, you read it before? I was like, sure, why not? And then we read it, and we decided to record it because it was only two of us, and that was a pretty small group. And next thing you know, we're here, and you're all listening with us. And ever since that beginning, uh, what we had hoped is hopefully you're in your party, in your organization, and you're doing your reading group, your political education group. And we could be another couple of voices in the crowd, um, you know, another chance to refresh the work and keep it in your mind, in your memory, another chance to, to get, you know, another source of input, another, you know, another different reading of the work to, to help you better understand it from, from multiple different ideas. Um, and let's say we're not doing that. And let's say your org is doing something shorter or more applicable to a project they're on, uh, or just a different important work of theory. And you're reading this on your own. Hopefully we can be that reading group and give you those benefits. And then let's say, um, you're not doing that. And it's either something like this, where we have a specified reader, something where we're reading a book word for word, more like enhanced ebook or something where we summarize stuff, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you, because we want these works out there guiding your actions. When these works form into revolutionary action, that's a phenomenon called praxis. Um, praxis, of course, you know, can be misguided and technically isn't praxis. It's just action, uh, without theory. And theory is completely useless without the praxis. And I, I corrected this last time, not completely completely useless, but very, very little use other than proliferating theory for other people's praxis uh, without the praxis. So um, they go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. And with that, uh, my name is David. I'm Prez. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.